Radio Rahim here with Quest Love. Left in no man's land, Quest Love and Black Thought must find their roots. Chapter 2 Sprouted. We were going to sign to another label. And they misspelled all three of our names. Now, usually when you get a contract, your lawyer can cross it out and you just put an initial by the correct spelling of your name right. and the contract's still good. But if all parties involved have misspelled names, right. and this is to the fault of the assistant who typed up the contracts, she lost her job, by the way. And the label's like, ah, okay, this is what we'll do. Destroy that. We'll send you a new contract. You guys will sign it Thursday night. Overnight it to us. And then Friday, we're good. She forgets to mail it on Thursday. Says, ah, my bad. I'll send it on Friday. And then you'll, you know, we'll get it on Monday and we're good. So that Friday, our lawyer says, hey, by the way, there's a, a woman who just got her job. And Geffen Records is like, we want you to run our whole department. So she's looking for anything to sign. And she's heard about you guys and wants to see. Now, in our mind, we're like, yo, we're going to sign. Let's label. We're, we're good already. We're good. We were not going to sign to Geffen Records. All they had was Nirvana and Guns N' Roses. Like, they had no rap. And then we thought about it. Like, all year, they've been courting us. We've been getting free steak and lobster. My manager was like, yo, we're just going to do a horse and pony show. We just did it so that we can get more free steak and more free lobster. We were, like, ignorant back then. So it'd be like, we place our order, but then go to the bathroom and tell the waiter, like, yo, get two more steaks and, like, five more orders that can grab to go for, like, six sweet potato bottles and just give it to us in the back of it. You know, they get the bill, you know, but back then, it's like, oh, $2,000 bill? Eh, charge it. We just did it for the horse and pony show of it all. And to really be ignorant, my manager was like, let's pull a helmet. So side note, 1992 was also the year of grunge, Nirvana, Pearl Jam. You know, Seattle had an explosion of groups. So there's a band out of, I think, Portland or Seattle called Helmet. They signed a deal for a million dollars. And that became the rage of like, yo, a band getting a deal for a million dollars is never heard of. Like, now it's like, whatever. You know what I mean? Like, Drake's boy could get four million, but back then you just didn't do that. And to put it in perspective, hip-hop was the redheaded stepchild. Cypress Hill's first record was made for, like, 45000 In Vogue's Funky Divas was made for $2.5 Michael Jackson's Dangerous was made for $9 million. A Tribe Called Quest's first record was, like, 100000 De La Soul's Three Feet High and Rising was made for 25000 bucks. I don't leave the house for that much. Like, life has changed now. That just shows you how they undercut hip-hop. So we got our steak dinner. We got our lobster to go. We're good money. So let's talk business. We was like, well, you know, we want two Pathfinders, one Land Cruiser, an SSL board, two MP360s, the Ribbon Royer microphones. We need five apartments. We did everything but a partridge and a pear tree. And she said... You know, let me think about it, whatever. Sunday night, our lawyer says, Hey guys, I got news. What? She laughed at us? No, the opposite. Wait, she fell for that shit? Well, no, not quite. I actually added more on top of what you guys asked for. And? She took it. Wait a minute. What are you telling us? She agreed to the, the three cars, the five apartments, a complete studio setup. All my drum machines? Yeah. The microphones? Yeah. Everything? Yeah. And? You know, because we weren't even thinking of business. This is how dumb we were. I reduced it to 
just six records. They released the first records. They had to keep you for the second and third record. They released the fourth record. They got to do the fifth and sixth record. And then you're free to agent. We didn't know that, like, that's some Jay-Z shit. And it's like, what about our label? Well, up to you guys. Do you want to sign it? You think we should sign it? Like, we, okay, we'll do it. Meanwhile, that guy's suicidal. He quit the business, oh, depressed and everything. God. We signed to the label. And um, so was it like we just hit the lotto and we're just celebrating? We or did, is this yeah, an we did some ignorant, we did some ignorant ass shit. There's a movie, oh, indecent proposal, and they got that half a million dollars and they swim in the money. They like lay in the money and all that right. stuff. Like, I had my ignorant Billy Jean moment where like I was walking down the block giving like homeless people a hundred bucks, seeing like would it turn into a white tuxedo glowing in the dark. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Then I was broke by February. Like, I'd spent, like, $20,000. Like, I brought every Puma, everything. Like, you couldn't tell me shit. It was just unprecedented because it's, like, the number one voted rap album of 1990 was made for 25000 bucks. We are signing for high six figures, like, almost a million dollars. It was just unheard of. the first wave of alternative hip-hop. Starts in 87 with the Jungle Brothers, and it ends in 1992 with Diggable Planets. So we're just, hold the door, hold the door, hold the and the train takes off. So we're on the platform, and the next train is Dr. Dre's The Chronic, which will change everything. Now, technically, Dr. Dre actually used live musicianship on The Chronic. But he introduces a world and ideas so grand that everybody says, I got to be derivative of the chronic. So Biggie sees that and says, y'all got to make the East Coast version of that record. And then Nas sees Biggie win. It's like, yo, forget the Zillmatics. You know, keep it real shit. I got to do what Biggie did to win. Everybody is following. And now we're coming to the plate like, here we are. Now we're like a sore thumb because everybody is getting paid using a heavy gangster narrative. And we're the odd guy out because we're trying to infuse the ideas that we grew up on that were from 87 to 92. There was no place for us. Between December of 93 and March of 94, Geffen's three biggest moneymakers leave the label. Aerosmith decides... We're going to go back to our first label, Columbia. Guns N' Roses is nowhere near a follow-up record to their last album in 1991. Right. So forget Guns N' Roses. And then April of 1994, my manager wakes me up. It's like, yo, we are fucked. I was like, what happened? He's like, you didn't hear the news? Nah. Kurt Cobain just committed suicide. Fuck. Wait, what does this mean? Yo, we're fucked. Well, what's that have to do with us? Dog, Aerosmith's gone. Guns N' Roses ain't making no money. And now Nirvana's done. Like, they're gonna drop the black department before it even starts. So what do we do? I got a plan. So what we did was we exiled to Europe. We said, all right, there's 10 days left. We're gonna knock out these eight songs. We're gonna shoot three videos. And then we're going to pull a Whoopi Goldberg. Ghost. So cut to us in our best suits at the bank. Yes, we'd like to close out our account. And 
you know, they're looking at us. You're Mr. Da -da 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 -da. Yes, we are. And they're looking, they slowly sign the check. That's our the remainder of our budget. And they hand it to us slowly. We take it, we walk out, and we know we got mere seconds. Hand it to our accountant, we cash it, we buy seven one-way tickets to London. <laughs> Wait, hold on, hold on. So you've done what you've been asked to it's do. It's our money, right. end quote. <laughs> but we stole it. But you're I, not supposed to use the rest of the budget. We're for supposed your to close the budget and say, and here's the album. We came in under budget. We had the feeling that they would take that remaining money and like, okay, well, we have to now use this for marketing and buy these ads and get you publicists and da 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 da. And our shit was like, no, a bird in the hand beats two in the bush. What we're going to do is take the remaining 100000 we're going to just run away to London, get a flat, find an agent, find a tour bus. And we're just going to partridge family the shit out of Europe. You reverse beetled. Technically, we did a Hendrix. Yeah, oh, yes, there you go. <laughs> we did a Hendrix. Fair. We went over there and got an agent, got a smelly, pissy tour bus. And we spent maybe a month in every country in Western Europe. So we do a month in Italy at this rinky-dink basement bar at this local, you know, whatever. And then we go to Germany, do the same thing, go to France, do the same thing. And, you know, the money's running out. We're living hand to mouth, living off of bread and French fries. And Geffen must know this is happening. With the casualness of when you might lost your car keys. Like, yeah. wait, well, I'm forgetting something. Wait a minute. Where's the root? Like, literally, they forgot we existed. Where are the roots? And they called Wendy Goldstein live, like, where's the roots at? Where's our money? We told Wendy early what we were doing. She was more like, don't ask, don't tell. And Wendy was like, uh, let me see, guys. And she's calling like, okay, the company knows they want to see something. And instantly, we got a publicist, too. And we said, show all the good press that we got in doing this. And it was that moment of asking forgiveness instead of permission. Look, we went to Europe, and we got all this press. And they looked, and they were like, wait, you guys did this on your own? Y yeah. And we're just like, okay, either they're going to press charges or we're going to get dropped. Or what the fuck? And they're like, oh, okay. Guess we'll put the album out in January. Whew. Okay, we still got a record deal. Meanwhile, what Rich predicted back in April did happen. They signed 12 acts. They dropped everybody but the Jizza and the Roots. So we came back and it was literally an uphill climb for two albums of trying to figure out how to get America's attention. But you were received better in Europe than you were at home. It made sense because here there's just no venue. If you think about it, like in 1993, the way that you're getting put it on is nepotism. Beanie Siegel's very first show in life is Madison Square Garden. With the exception of my situation with my dad, nobody's first show should be at Radio City Music Hall. And no one's last show should be at Madison Square Garden, like my story was. You know, you're supposed to work your way up. Aretha Franklin did 12 years in her father's church and slowly worked her way up to royalty. You couldn't see Brandy or Monica in some local club first before they got put on. Nepotism was how, you know, Snoop puts his boys on. Jay-Z puts his boys on. That was the new way of building acts, and hopefully they got a good single and traction, but also the fall-off is faster. There's no honing a craft. We realized this on our third record. 
now in a panic situation because we got all this critical acclaim and now we're about to make our fourth album and we're still not catching on. And if it doesn't work on this fourth album, we're going to get dropped. So we came up with a plan. And the plan was we're going to grow our own crops. And doing that was Friday night in my living room, we're going to have jam sessions. Label's now looking like, wait a minute, who's this Chef Terry and why is he on the budget? And we said, you can't have a jam session without free food. And you need good food to entice the music community that we want to attract. So as a result, an unknown, unproven Jill Scott is like, y'all having jam sessions in there? Can I come over? Okay. An unknown Kendrick, the family soul, is saying, yo, a homegirl from Atlanta sings. And, you know, that's in Diary. She comes up. The jam sessions got so big in my house that I worked hard to prevent the pizza delivery guy from getting on the microphone. Because now it's like, <laughs> wait. Wait, anybody can just get it? Anybody can rock. Anybody can get in here now? Are we letting the pizza guy rock? Now, cut to two years later, Music Soul Child's the pizza guy. Bilal is this nine-year-old that is singing some gibberish, like he's a weirdo. Like, is he singing music? Are these words? Are Is he doing cat calls now on the microphone? Eve, you know, well, she talked about her past. We knew her as the stripper joined from the Golden Lady. (laughs) She rhymes? What's she doing here? And literally, I didn't know. Kwali always makes this story that he got dropped off a of Roots record. I've heard that once or twice. Yeah. An unknown most, an unknown Kwali. Common would come by and Erica would come by and, you know, those things. But the silliest story of all is our boy telling us he has these rapping protégés who at the time were like, this 11-year-old girl singing in my house. Jasmine Sullivan. We figured we'll build the story. And what happens is five hours on Friday, we're working on our craft and on our on our thing. And then Sunday nights at Wetlands in New York, same thing. So from 1997 till 2000, this is happening like clockwork. 10 hours a week for these four years. And suddenly, 14 record deals. Well, you're really the epicenter of a culture that yes. you're describing now. Yeah. But do you recognize that up until this point, you're really counterculture? In the sense that you're fighting the established way things are being done. At every stage, the way things are expected to be done, right? you want to do them the opposite way. There's a culture and a counterculture. And you got to figure out which side of the swing is. The end of 97 being the, the death of Tupac and Biggie. And Puffy sort of taking the baton from the two. With the rise of Bad Boy in 97, and then kind of the, the waning crash of Bad Boys was the shooting the nightclub shooting, you know, the thing where Shine, him, J-Lo, at the tunnel, like his second album, Forever, it flopped. And there was like a backlash. And we took advantage of that backlash. It, w- it wasn't like we knew it was going to happen. But I think at that point, there was just so much of it happening. There was, there was a sect of people that wanted something different. And as a result, Erica's coming down the pipeline. D'Angelo's coming down the pipeline. And the thing is, we're we're not doing it as a movement on purpose. Now, we we all took a family photo in Vibe magazine. Most, Kwali, Dilla, Common, D'Angelo, Erica. We all took this photo together. You know, it was supposed to be like the announcement of a movement. And I realized then, if you look throughout history, whenever a moment happens, you look at Woodstock and you think, oh, this is the flag planting of peace, love, and understanding, and no. Woodstock is actually the end of the sentence. 
You look at Saturday Night Fever, 77. Oh, disco is the moment. Flag planting. No, that's the end of disco. Michael Jackson's Thriller. Oh, my God. For 10 years, he struggled to get to this point. Now he's the king of the world. Michael Jackson's here. Nope, that's the end of Michael Jackson. You even look politically. I'm sure that people thought, oh, Obama in the presidency. Like, we finally made it to the mountaintop, ladies and gentlemen. This is the beginning of pro-racial America. We're here. No. Fucked around, it was the end of the sentence. So whenever something big and gargantuan happens in history, people tend to think of it as the beginning of the sentence. It was the end of the sentence. So when that photo was taken, suddenly everyone stopped coming to the jam sessions. We stopped calling each other. Chappelle's block party was such a wonderful captured moment in spirit. But that whole day, that was one of the saddest days of my life because I considered that movie my funeral. I didn't realize it until Kanye was the only one who wasn't there for the direct rehearsals, and he had to rehearse that morning. He wanted to do the Jesus Walk thing with the marching band and everything, da 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 So we were there for like two hours earlier rehearsing with everyone else and getting our thing together. But then he showed up, and there was like a new burst of energy there. And the whole place came alive, like all the kids and everything. And then I was like, oh, shit, that used to be us back in... Back in 1993. It's 10 years later. And then I was like, oh, this is the end for us. And this is the beginning for him. And that whole day, I just felt very somber and sad about it. I, I really want to preserve this moment because before this, we were spending the night at each other's cribs, working together, working on music. Electric Lady Studios was our hub. It was the end. We all split apart. We all stopped calling each other. I thought... This is it. This is the last stop of the train. Basically, from 2004 to 2008, I'm sort of operating in a, it's going to be over any moment. And I've had moments where, like, I've been really freaked out, like, Run DMC's opening for us. And it's like, yo, Tariq, man, you remember, like, when we went to the Fresh Fest and we all, everyone held up their Adidas sneakers and they sold out the Spectrum in Madison Square Garden? And it's like, yo, y'all sure Run DMC wants to open for us? I was seeing the first wave of successful rappers now deal with how to handle that where it's not about you anymore and suddenly, you know, you might want to flex and let people know Hey, I'm still good. I still got it. I didn't want to get to that Vegas place. Right. When the Tonight Show offer occurred in 2008, I was a musical director by accident. After season three of The Chappelle Show implodes, Neil Brennan just happens to tell Jimmy Fallon, who's about to fill in Conan O'Brien's space, who's incidentally about to fill in Jay Leno's space, hey, uh, what should I do about musicians on my new late night show? Neil Brennan says, ask the Roots. They know all the best musicians. And Jimmy Fallon's like, exactly. I'll ask the Roots. He said, no, 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 no. They wouldn't consider it. Just ask the Roots. They know they know all the best musicians. Jimmy's like, yeah, I'm going to ask the Roots. Even the way that that happened was totally by mistake because I had just moved to L.A. My first day in L.A., I meet Jimmy Fallon. And I already know, I'm not going to take this offer, but I'll invite you to the show and we'll sit at the table, we'll talk, and we'll politely decline but I at least want to be your friend 
So that way, when it's time to release a record, I can still come on the show and be in good standing, whatever. And um, he comes to the show, and the weirdest shit happens. Uh, I go away for 20 minutes, and Jimmy is doing a Bring It On-esque human pyramid with the rest of the roots. But the thing that made it even deeper was Tariq was on the bottom row. So my first thought is, wait, Tariq is getting his Japanese denim dirty on the football field in this human pyramid. And I look at my manager and we're like, we are not getting rid of Jimmy Fallon. And he was so persistent, so persistent and said, you know, come on guys, you can be with your families. And then we thought about it like, oh, we could be with our families. In my mind, again, in that block party mentality, I said, this is a dignified way to die. We're going to do eight minutes of music a week. It's going to be the same amount of pay as doing 275 shows a year. Nobody's kid's going to be crying in the airport. Daddy, don't go. You know, we're going to, <laughs> to, to Australia for three weeks. You know, because now their kids are like seven, eight years old. They're missing soccer practice and all this stuff. Right. So now we could be home. I can finally have a long-term girlfriend and not have her lose her mind and, you know, all that stuff. So that's why we took the show. I didn't once think that this is going to be a second chance or a new breath of life for us. But what I didn't want was to have that moment where I'm at my funeral again. 2009 to now, I'm saying yes to everything. Always saying yes creates opportunity, also separation. Next time, Until This Day, with Quest Love, Chapter 3, Yes Man.